Well, I thought we could start today with a little bit of a game, a who am I? So I'm going to show you um, some pictures and feel free to call out if you know who I am. So who am I? In 1874, along with my inventing buddy, we painted a design for an incandescent light bulb. We further developed the design with a second and better patent in 1876. Does anyone know who this is? It's not Thomas Edison, guys. This, uh, this is Edward Woodward, actually. And he ran out of money. Him and his buddy ran out of money. And so they just stopped their research. And then their research was purchased by Thomas Edison, who refined um, the technology to create a longer-lasting bulb. Woodward and his buddy Evans' early work on the light bulb has gone largely unrecognised. However, it was definitely an important development in the invention of the lighting that we have here today. Okay, next, who am I? In 1955, Montgomery, Alabama, I refused to give up my seat on a bus to a white person. I challenged the law and got arrested, but was left with my dignity intact by resisting racial segregation. This then led to a court case that eventually overturned bus segregation laws in both the city of Montgomery and the state of Alabama. I became a bold catalyst for the civil rights movement. Does anyone know who this is? It's not Rosa Parks. This is actually Claudette Colvin. And because of her age at 15, she wasn't selected by the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People to be their symbol for the emerging civil rights movement. They went with Rosa Parks, who was also, among other people at the time, um, resisting segregation through boycotting the buses. Finally, this one's a little bit more fun, and I know now people are like, we're not calling out the answer. We know what you're doing, Pastor Cat. <laughs> who am I? I was the drummer for one of the biggest bands in the world. Our band toured the world as the first ever big boy band, causing women to faint the world over with hits like Yellow Submarine. Does anyone know who, well, this guy, I think he's just in the middle there, second from the... Oh, we do know it, it's Pete Best. Okay, so when the band The Beatles auditioned for George Martin and EMI Records, Martin decided that the group was super likeable, was going to make him a bunch of money, but Best drumming was substandard. The band fired Pete and they hired Ringo Starr and the rest is history. You don't need to feel too terrible for Pete though because some of his recordings on earlier Beatles tracks um, got released later and in 1995 he got 4 million euros in, uh, in royalty, so he's doing okay. <laughs> well, what do we think all of these people have in common? It's that the history books largely, other than Pete there at the end, overlooked them. And today we are starting a four-week series in the book of Haggai. And as Deb said, she hasn't heard anyone preach on Haggai because I think Haggai is often overlooked. In most of our Bibles, Haggai only takes up one page or four chapters or three chapters, sorry, fit on that one page. Haggai is one of the 12 minor prophetic books and unlike the other prophets, uh, it doesn't have the same sort of social justice lens. Haggai isn't really having a go at the people in power like the other prophets. And I think it definitely lacks some of the excitement and imagination that the other prophetic books have. 
but it's still a very important book that God used to speak uh, to us today and the people of the biblical times as well. And it's a really important little um, point in Israel's history there as well. And the great thing about it being so short is that by the end of these four weeks, everyone in this room will be able to say, I've read the entire book just by showing up on a Sunday and listening. (laughs) Or if you want to go a step further, you can use the reflective questions that we're going to be putting up on the website and you can follow along with Haggai and these questions in your own devotional time as well. So here's what we're going to do today. Um, We're going to do three things. First, we're going to lay the foundation by looking at the context of Haggai, and this will kind of set us up for the whole series. Then we're going to look at the challenge that God is giving to the people in Haggai in their time and their context. And third and finally, we're going to explore what that means for 21st century followers of Christ. So let's get into it. Well, Craig read for us chapter one this morning, and it started with this opening line. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jazadak, the high priest. Well, why give us this information? It signifies that the setting and the date is really important. In other places in the Bible, dates are kind of, you know, a little bit we argue about them. What what date is really this book? But here we're told where this story and where this narrative takes place in Judah during the second year of King Darius. That lets us know that it's during the Persian, the rule of the Persian Empire. Um, So what does that mean? Well, let's take a tiny little quick history lesson in the book of the prophets. We have 17 prophets in the Old Testament. We got the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. And most of the prophets are speaking before the Babylonian exile. Um, In the time when you had the southern and the northern kingdom, they were split. Um, And for centuries, these prophets were speaking in that context and saying, hey, if you guys don't wise up, if you don't stop breaking your covenant with God, the rising powers of Babylon, they're going to come and they're going to take over and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And sure enough, they were right. Babylon decimates the city, destroys the temple that Solomon built, and led the Israelites off into exile. But that's not all the prophets were saying during that time. They also believed that there was hope and that one day God would bring back and reinstate the new Jerusalem, building a new temple where God's presence would once again dwell. And so we fast forward 70 years or so to the start of the book of Haggai. So they've been, the Babylonian Empire has fallen and we enter in the Persian Empire. And the Persian king says to all of these people who have been in exile for 70 years, I want to govern you on your own territory, on your own soil. This means that the exiles weren't only allowed, but they were encouraged to return to their homelands. And they were allowed to practice their own religion. And they were even sponsored to build the temples because it became a place where they would then go to pay taxes back to the Persian Empire. Not everyone, however, took advantage of this policy. Many chose to remain in Babylon. It had been 70 years, generations had passed and they'd made a home there. But we're told in the book of Ezra that 40,000 people 
chose to return under the leadership of Zerubbabel. But when they arrived back in Judah, they found that their homeland was impoverished, left in rubble from that Babylonian siege, and so they began to rebuild the city. The very first thing they do ahead of building anything or the temple was to rebuild an altar to God to come and worship and bring sacrifices. And so Haggai is speaking to Zerubbabel 18 years after the first exiles return home. The whole book that we're going to read is only set over a four-month period. So now that we have our sort of foundation uh, that's going to carry us through uh, this four-week series, we're going to look at today's specific passage and the challenge that God issues to the returned people. So here we are. 18 years after their return. I want to ask you, if you'd been back somewhere for 18 years, what do you think you would have managed to rebuild? Now, you don't have tractors, you don't have all the great, you know, construction stuff, but what do you think would have been your priorities if you were them during that time? Well, we're told in verse 2 what they prioritise. The people have said to the Lord, The time has not come to rebuild the Lord's house. And in response, we get this big challenge from God through the prophet of Haggai in the form of a question. God says to them, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while my house, this house, remains in ruin? God here is calling them out to say, Well, you've managed to rebuild your own places and they've got nice, fancy panelling, but you've left mine for 18 years in complete ruin. And so God goes on to confront them further and tells them, be careful of your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that seems to have holes in it. God then instructs them what they must do next and challenges them to build his house. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expect much, but see, it turns out to be little. What you bought home, back to Judah, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own home. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the olive oil and everything else that the ground produces, on people and on livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. So we're shown in these verses that for all of their effort, for all that they have done to promote their own needs ahead of the Lord's, it's all subpar. They remain cold. They remain hungry. They are never really flourishing. And we see similar themes throughout the Old Testament, a correlation between obeying God and being blessed and disobeying and being cursed. 
Though we know that this type of cause and effect theology is kind of turned on its head when we get to the New Testament, when we get to Jesus, and we're going to explore that in a moment, so we'll just park that. Although it could be easy to blame the people for putting their own needs ahead of rebuilding the temple, we know that in this context that we explored earlier, it indicates that they don't actually do so firstly out of selfish focus on their own luxury, Rather, it's a time of hardship. They've arrived in a rubble, barren land and they see their own survival as taking precedent. I think this is a common problem for us as well, that during the difficult times in our lives, we find it easy to withdraw from serving God and serving others. We say, oh, we'll come back to it, claiming that we need all of our resources to meet our own requirements just now. The difficulty of life becomes an excuse for centering our existence on ourselves. We take the gifts and the resources that we do have and we hoard them for ourselves. The very thing that we might use in the Lord's service and the service of others, we keep for ourselves. Like the 40,000 who return to Judah, we too are all guilty of building our own houses with great passion while neglecting God's. However, the reading today does then go on to tell us that the 4,000 do indeed obey God. They commit to rebuilding the temple and the Lord speaks a final time through Haggai and says, well, while you do this, I am with you. So in our first two sections of today's message, we've explored the context We've explored the message that God had for these people in Judah at this time about priorities, their priorities, and rebuilding the Lord's house. But what on earth does that mean for us here today? Well, this is not the part where in David and Michelle's absence, I announce a big building project (laughs) and say, okay, guys, cough up your finances. I'm not going to tell you to give large sums of money over And then watch as God blesses each and every one of you with a new sports car and a bigger house and a better life for your material giving and your faithful giving. I think I've heard that sermon before. You might have heard that sermon before. And I think it's taking Haggai completely out of context. I think that that material health and wealth prosperity gospel is simply just bad theology. A theology that we need to leave in the Old Testament because Christ came and transformed it. As I was reading a commentary on Haggai this week, I especially like this quote. It said, The problem with such an approach to this passage is that our focus is not on Christ, but simply a more effective materialism. We treat seeking God as a means to building our own kingdom, not God's. Whether the form of that kingdom is a bigger, better local church that we can boast in and a better ministry or personal prosperity and fulfilling relationships, we replace a failing pragmatism of take care of yourself first with a more successful pragmatism. Look out for God so that God will take care of you. A bit of a vending machine of, you know, blessings in, blessings out. This attitude explains why our instinctive question for the book of Haggai is, well, did it work? 
In other words, did rebuilding the Lord's house in fact lead to better harvests and a more satisfying life? Did it boost the land's productivity? Did God open the floodgates of heaven and shower his people with their blessings? Well, here is the thing that we're going to discover as we read on over the next couple of weeks. Haggai is actually completely silent on whether they experienced a change in their material well-being. Because that's not what the prophet is interested in. Because building God's house isn't about their blessing. It's simply about reinstating God's enduring presence with his people. The same can be said for us. Building God's house means far more for us than simply writing a large cheque to the church building fund. The visible symbol of God's presence among us is no longer a temple. It's no longer a church building. So what then is God's house in our 21st century context? Well, according to the New Testament the symbol of God's presence amongst us is the body of Christ itself. Jesus is personally the fulfilment of everything that the temple and the tabernacle symbolised. And we know this because in John chapter 2, Jesus says, we'll destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We know that Jesus isn't talking about destroying a building, not the physical temple, he's talking about himself his own body, that on Good Friday, his body was going to be teared down and destroyed. And three days later, on Easter Sunday, it would be raised up, that his body itself was the new temple of God, the physical representation of God in the midst of his people. But now that Jesus has gone to heaven, where's God's temple? Well, God has poured out God's spirit on the church, God is present in the world in us, not us individually, but us as his collective people. Remember that when I say church, I mean the community of people, not a building. The church is the place where people around us experience the presence of God in this world here and now. In the church, in our communal life, we who are Christians are being built as a holy dwelling place for God by his spirit, as it says in Ephesians. In our communal life, we together are the new temple that Christ came to build, the visible symbol of God's activity here and now. For us then, building God's house means serving God in the task of making evident his presence in our world and in our communities. For us, building God's house is a task far beyond our own capabilities to achieve. Building God's house is ultimately a task that will be accomplished not by our own efforts, but by Christ's. So God is the one who is building up this new temple, the church, who is guiding and feeding our communal life by his Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean we can all go home now, go get our cups of tea, kick our legs up because God's doing it all and we get to take a passive role. On the contrary, God's work 
is the foundation and the encouragement for our work and our discipleship. It was because God roused the spirit that Haggai's hearers set to work with enthusiasm on his house. It is because the spirit of God is at work in each and every one of our individual bodies. It is because that same spirit joins us as one community that we can build God's home, God's house. It's because God is committed to establishing his kingdom in and through us that we seek that kingdom first, above all the other things in our lives. It's because of these things that we will be stirred to holy energy and enthusiasm to love and build God's church and to prioritise our communal life, even when it's hard, even when we can't stand those people, even when we've been rostered on to preach on a really, really cold morning. But I want to remind you that the result of seeking first God's kingdom, of prioritising our communal life, will not necessarily be earthly prosperity or even large, successful churches. You know, it's my hope and my prayer that it is, but that's not the promise. Jesus' own earthly ministry was not characterised by such prosperity or a large following at the time that he was alive. Such blessings are not promised here on earth, but they are assured in God's coming kingdom. However, I promise you that when we come together to prioritise our communal life, God's enduring presence here on earth as his people, we're going to see little snippets of that coming kingdom promise breaking through. We're going to see it in our relationships with one another. We're going to see it through serving. We're going to see it in life's changed. So when we read together Haggai chapter 1, we're left with two things, I think. First is a really confronting question, and that is, honestly, what are you prioritising ahead of being part of God's community? What are you putting your time, your energy, your money, your efforts, your thinking and your zeal into ahead of God's community? And the second thing that Haggai leaves us with is an invitation an invitation to join in the community of God's people fully here and now on earth. Whether that's here in this church community at BMBC, getting to know and serve together, or whether it's being part of another Christian movement, community or organisation, how will you more fully commit to joining in communal life of God's people? Well, let's pray together. Loving God, we thank you for your message throughout your whole scripture in the big popular books, but also in these little ones like Haggai. We ask this morning that your spirit would help us to search ourselves and identify what it is that we are really prioritising and that your spirit would encourage and challenge us to be more full members of your communal life, your temple here on earth now. 
And we pray that as we prioritise your kingdom, that it would become come here on, on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all these things in your mighty name. Amen.